So, in the Great Commission, I want to go, normally we just talk verses 18 to, to 20, but I want to begin in verse 6. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, as we look at this amazing passage, I want to start by looking at the, the literary beauty of it. And some of you may think this is a little odd. When I was going through this, I said, wow, this is just like English class back in high school. And I even had to look up the word, you know, you have your themes and your plots and this thing. you have climax. And then I said, I can't even remember how we said that, the denouement. I looked that up this morning, the, the conclusion where the, everything fits together and it's all wrapped up. And what's interesting about the book of Matthew, where these are the last four or five verses in it, that we see all of these things. It's an amazing piece of literature. Um, I listed here these, these five or six, actually I, I added one more, six, that this idea of he mentions Galilee, he mentions the mountain, worship authority, his presence, and I thought also this idea of nations. These are actually themes throughout the entire book of Matthew, especially we see them at the beginning, at the end, many of them we see in the middle too. And it's like a great piece of literature where you have themes and there's foreshadowing at the beginning and then there's conflict. We see conflict in the book of Matthew where at the very early, you know, Herod uh, kills the babies, tries to kill Jesus, so right away we have conflict in the story and we're wondering how it's going to pan out. Um, and then we have these themes that continue to work themselves throughout the whole thing. And then we have, the, I think the climax of the book is the resurrection of Jesus. And then at the very end, the denouement. Say that once. Denouement. Yes, pardon my French. But uh, <laughs> yeah, at the end... These four books, or these four verses, or five verses, wrap up all the loose ends and bring it all together at the end of the book. And it's, it's an amazing piece of literature. I think often we, I don't know, we don't look at the Bible as being a, sometimes, it's the most quoted book in the world, it's the most influential book in the world, uh, and the way it was written. Some people say, oh yeah, it's amazing how God borrowed these ideas of a theme and climax, I think, I don't really think he borrowed them. I think God was the author of those things, and we borrowed them from the Bible throughout, and that's what makes great movies and great stories, is it originated in God, that creativity. So I want to look just briefly at these ideas of the, the, what a literary masterpiece Matthew is, and how the Great Commission is this amazing conclusion for it. So these ideas, first is, in Galilee. Well, at the beginning of Jesus' life, it says that Joseph was warned in a dream. Because of it, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So Jesus' life begins in Galilee. All right, then his ministry, right after he was tempted by Satan, uh, it says that he withdrew to Galilee, which was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. And so there's this idea of uh, the Gentiles were associated with this area. But the beginning of his life, the beginning of his ministry, 
were around Galilee. And then at the end of the book, the Great Commission, the eleven went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus was gonna, we told them to go. So it comes full circle, this night. It begins with Galilee, ends in Galilee. And then the idea of Galilee was associated with the Gentiles. And Jesus tells them at the end, make disciples of all nations. So that theme gets worked in there as well. And then this mention, he told them to go to the Galilee, to the mountain that I told you to go to. Well, in Jesus' teaching, very beginning, the Sermon on the Mount, he went up on a mountain to give that sermon. I recently read that they polled 50% of people and asked them, where was the Sermon on the Mount given? And it was a multiple choice question. And 50% of the people picked the selection on the back of a horse. The Mount, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we got to be reading our Bibles a little more in America. Then in the middle of his life, we have the transformation. Again, Peter, James, and John, he took them up on a mountain. And then the book ends with the Great Commission being given in this mountain in Galilee. So again, this, any English, is there anybody that teaches English? This is just the English teacher's dream. Just how beautifully this is all worked together. All right, then there's the idea of worship. It says, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. And I, I looked up this Greek word, and uh, I had a Greek class years ago, but I'm not trying to impress you with Greek because I don't really remember hardly any of it. I go to the biblehub.com, and it tells you anybody can, can look at it and, and learn from it. So it's a great resource. But there's the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And it's a combination of two words, to kiss and the word towards. And it gives this idea of maybe either the idea of kiss as in love, towards someone, or the knees kissing on the ground. But it means to adore or to worship somebody on one's knees. And interestingly enough, this book is used several times in the book of Matthew. First, the wise men. It said they came and proskuneoed the baby Jesus. They bowed down on their knees and adored him. Then Satan told him, when he tempted him at the beginning of his ministry, he told Jesus to proskuneo, bow down and adore me on your knees. And Jesus said, no, only, we're only to worship, we're only to proskuneo God and not you. Then there was a leper that came and knelt, knelt proskuneoed before Jesus, said, you can make me clean. There was the synagogue ruler, he knelt down. The disciples, when Jesus walked to them on the water, it said they, in the boat, they proskuneoed, they bowed down on their knees and worshipped Jesus. The unmerciful servant did the same when uh, he was told to pay up. Uh, and then we see this idea at the end of Jesus' life. First, when the women saw Jesus at the tomb, it said, uh, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. The women came to him clasped his feet, and proskuneoed him. They adored him, worshipped him on their knees. And then finally in the Great Commission, it says when the disciples saw Jesus, they proskuneoed, they worshipped him. So how, how cool that this idea, we see it from the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry, the middle, throughout his life, and then it's wrapped up in the denouement at the end of the book of Matthew. And then also his presence. In Matthew 1, it spoke about how Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, that this child will be called Emmanuel, 
God with us. Right there in the first chapter of the book. But then we look at the end of the Great Commission and Jesus says, and surely I'll be with you always to the end of the age. He talks about his presence with them. So again, the beginning and end, it's like there are bookmarks here of these different themes. Um, and also one I would add of, of nations that we talked about Galilee in the beginning, the beginning, the first chapter of Matthew, uh, it mentions uh, the genealogy of Jesus, uh, including Ruth, who was a Moabite. Okay, and then we see Gentiles uh, are mentioned several times throughout the book, and then at the end again, Jesus says, go to all nations. So there's all these themes, and they all are beautifully wrapped up at the end of the book. So I, don't know, I just think that is it's just really cool how beautiful uh, a masterpiece of literature the book of Matthew and every book of the, of the Bible is. I don't know, does that resonate with anybody? Is that kind of scene? Is there anybody that's like a teacher or just loves literature and that's not just cool, that's like super cool? I don't know. All right, yes. Yeah, the Bible, it is an amazing book. And it's just every year, every week I spend more time in it, the more I realize, wow, what a masterpiece, what an incredible book that it is. Then another beautiful thing about this account is the realism. Okay, so they go to Galilee and they bowed down and they worshiped him, but it says, but some doubted. And the disciples had already had an encounter with Jesus, had already met with him, and yet still, at the end, some still doubted. Why would, they, why would the writer want to include this? It's because the Bible is so brutally honest about life, and we're going to talk really honestly about some things today. And I want to do that because that's what the Bible does. It, it tells the story warts and all. Yeah, it'd be wonderful if it just said, oh, they all just worshipped it and everything was perfect. But no, some still doubted. And it get, it, it's an encouragement to us because we said, wow, God, I've been following you a long time and I still fail you. I still doubt you at times. But that's life. That's the way it is. And the Bible prepares us for that. It's, it's beautiful. This account also talks about his authority. Jesus comes to them. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And he tells them what to do. So he reminds them of his authority. Interestingly, earlier when he sent the disciples out, the 12, he said he gave them authority over uh, demons and over sickness. So he's done this before. And here at the end, he brings up his authority But there's also a sense here that he's not just saying, I have all authority, but that I'm I'm giving it to you because he then commissions them to go out. And we see that all throughout Scripture. God blesses people, and then he commissions them to to go do his work. And so we, we know that also at the end, he says, surely I'm with you. It's this idea, his he's with us with his authority that he gives to us. And provides his power. But I want us to look at this, this, this passage. And this is the, the sobering part for me. Is uh, I didn't mean to show that. Oh, I gave the answer away already. Don't, don't look at me. Don't look at the screen. <laughs> All right. 
what is the, the main verb in the Great Commission? Okay? Yell it out. The main thing Jesus told us to do. Go! Right? It says it right there. It's the first thing. Well, actually, in the Greek, as it says here, the main verb is make disciples. And the supporting verbs are the secondary verbs. I think it's in your handout. You'll see, you'll see that written there. The, the supporting verbs, the participle verbs, are go, baptizing, and teaching to obey. And this is really significant. And I've been wrestling this a lot the last 10, 15 years. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So Jesus is getting ready to go to heaven, and the Great Commission is tying all these things up and reminding us of what's most important. Okay, I'm going to go to heaven now. Make disciples. That's what he says. The main thing is to make disciples. How do you, how you do that is by going and baptizing and teaching to obey. But the goal, what I want you to do as I leave, is to make disciples. And if I can just be really honest with you, I don't like that. I'm not really happy with this verse. I wish it said something different. God has raised the, the bar so high here. It's not easy to make disciples. Well, first let's look at what, what does it mean to make disciples. Okay, it's, I, I like this definition. Come alongside people and we're going to fill this in later, do something and then help them to become more like Christ in every area of their life in equipping them to do the same with others. That's what it means to make disciples. So what's, what's missing here? Well, I think for a long time I realized, oh, there's discipleship. That's how you help people become more like Christ in every area of their life. Okay? And so Jesus is saying that's what we're supposed to do. Help Christians become more like Christ. But, but if we put this back into the Great Commission, Jesus said, go and help Christians become more like Christ uh, and do that among all nations. Well, if the disciples would help the people that were believers to become more like Christ, okay, they do that and then it's pretty much over, right? How does it get to the rest of the nations? My, my point is that when he says make disciples, he's, not, he's talking about evangelism and discipleship. He can't just be talking about discipleship because when they discipled the believers, then they're done. So in, it, it, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to divide. Evangelism is different than discipleship. They, there's some overlap, but he's saying both here, which to me, what he's saying is go and evangelize people and disciple them. And so I wasn't very happy how high God has set the bar but now we realize, oh, it's even higher. God, give me a break. This is, you're asking us to do some hard things here. To convert people and have them change their allegiance to you and then to work to make them conform their life to be like you in every part of their life. It's hard. This, this is a hard teaching, I think. So to modify to say, to make disciples is to come alongside people to win them to Christ, help them become more like Christ in every area of their life, equipping them to, to do the same. So it's to win, build, equip, and send them out to do the same. Win, build, equip, and send. 
just a, a, one way to, to think about what Christ is telling us to do. That is no easy task. Well, but what I like about this, I like the idea that discipleship is coming alongside people uh, and, and evangelizing them is that way too. Sometimes we think it's talking down to people. It's you, you gain all the knowledge and you got everything figured out and then you talk down to people and tell them how to, what they need to know and do. But really we see the life of Christ and Paul and, and we see it. No, it's coming alongside people as a, as a, a friend, as a brother. We don't have to be experts, but it's coming alongside to help people, to win them. And then I like that this idea that it's helping people become more like Christ in every area of their life. Sometimes we think of discipleship, we think of it in terms of, oh, it's just a spiritual task. It's just helping people um, in church-related things, to, to read their Bible more, to understand their Bible better, to pray more. That's discipleship. You're helping people with the church-related kind of things. But we know, no, discipleship is about every part of your life. I remember early in my Christian life, someone said to me, they said, the best way you know, I think, to test how mature someone is spiritually, he said, for a guy, is watch him drive and watch him play sports. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I almost had to take, I have a harvest sticker on my car. I've, several times I thought, oh, maybe I should take that off. I might not be the best. <laughs> Sometimes I'm a crummy driver. Um, but no, it's this idea, that's what God, discipleship is about helping people become more like God in every part of their life. As a, a husband, as a son, uh, as a daughter, as an aunt, as an uncle, as a father, as a, a husband. Every role that we have and everything that we do in our lives. As we cook, the way that we cook and the way that we eat conform to be Christ-like. And then I like this idea that it's equipping others to do the same. If, it, if, if you help somebody to be more like Christ in every area of their life, but they in turn don't help others, it's not really discipleship. And because of that, there's this term that's come up, disciple makers. I, I, I don't, not only do I want to make disciples, I want to make disciple makers. So we had to invent this new word that's not in the Bible because people weren't really getting that as you make disciples, if you really make a disciple like Christ, they're going to do what Christ did. That includes helping others to do the same. But because that so often has been short-circuited, we have this new word, disciple makers, which it's the same thing, but I, I think the idea is we're equipping people to do the same. And that's when we know when they're really becoming true disciples is they're helping others as well. Okay, back to what I don't like about this definition. And I don't know if that sounds, how that sounds to say, I don't like this verse, but it, I'm just being honest. It's hard. I, I wish it didn't, it wasn't, the wording wasn't like this. Go. To go means you've got to take initiative. God's saying, discipling people, they, they just don't come to your door and knock and say, Wade, can you, you disciple me? That's not been my experience. In my late 20s, I got really interested in being discipled. I was listening to these tapes, and one of the tapes said, if you want to be a disciple, find somebody in your church that's godly and ask them to disciple you. So I was going to this community church in Tacoma, Washington, and there's this guy 
his name, Dick Johnson and his wife, June. They were just like worship like saints. They've been at the church for 50 years. Everybody loved them, adored them. The kids would come up and every kid would give them a hug. I, I'd never seen a couple like this. So I went up to Dick. And I said, I, I just, that guy's a saint. I'm going to ask him. So I went up to him and said, Dick, will you disciple me? I've been reading about discipleship. And they said, if you want to be a disciple, ask somebody to disciple. So I did. And he said, okay, young man, next Monday at 6.15, I'll meet you at such and such a restaurant. So I said, great. So we met. And we sat down. And for the next 45 minutes, well, Dick started. He said, open your Bible. He said, go to Genesis uh, 128. And... Uh, and I opened it up, and then he didn't open his Bible, and he just, he quoted Genesis 1-28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Now turn your Bible to Exodus. So I turned to Exodus, and there's another verse, and he didn't open his Bible, he just quoted. And for the next 45 minutes, he went through every book, all 66 books of the Bible, and quoted one verse from every book. And then we were done, he prayed, and I left and I never heard from him again, and I was discipled. <laughs> and that, that kind of bothered me for a while. I, that left my head spinning. Wow, so that's how you disciple people. Or I was wondering, is that how you disciple people? And then later when I began studying more, I, I ended up feeling, you know, I feel sorry for Dick Johnson because he's been at the church 50 years, and nobody ever taught him how to disciple somebody. He just, he did the best he could. That's all he knew. Just read the word of God, memorize it. But I think we all know it's a little bit more than that. But it does take initiative. There's not going to be many people like me that go to the Dick Johnson and say, disciple me, <laughs> especially after that. <laughs> then make disciples, okay? Uh, and we just said that includes not just helping people mature in Christ, but it includes evangelizing people, winning people. So that's hard. These things are hard. Then not just to the people around us. God wants it done to the very ends of the earth among every ethnic group. And then he says baptizing them. When you baptize somebody, it's when they say, I'm changing my allegiance from following these other things and I'm putting Christ first in my life. That's a total rearranging of their life. God wants us to, to do that. And then he says teach. But he doesn't just say teach. He says teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And we've all got to admit there is a gigantic difference between teaching people and teaching them to obey. Right? It's, pretty, it's not that hard to teach people. I'm, I'm doing it right now. You know, it's just go talk to people, whatever. But if the goal becomes teaching them to obey, if the purpose of my sermon here and every sermon is to see people obey it, and that becomes the goal of the church is not just to teach people, but get people to obey the truth. That is a gigantic difference, isn't it? Are you with me on that? That, that is just a huge difference. But that's what he's calling us to in this passage. And that's why I don't like it. It's too hard, God. That's what I said to God so many times. God, it is just too hard. In my own life, these things are hard. Taking initiative. 
sharing the gospel with people, trying to help them grow, getting them to convert, teaching them, not just teaching them, but get them to obey. Come on, God, you've just set the bar too hard. And I found myself saying, God, I just wish you would have said. (laughs) If only Jesus said, go and be involved in the activities of your church. Wouldn't that just have been a lot better? I mean, really, don't, I, I really, I wish it had said that, because I'd be doing good. I'd be doing really good. I mean, I was thinking this morning, you know, Helen used to go, there were some weeks where every morning she would go out and have a, a quiet time, kind of like a little church meeting with some village ladies. And on, on Sundays when we were in Jingxi, we'd have, the foreigners would have church, and then we'd go in the afternoon or evening and have church with the locals. So, man, we were going to church twice on Sundays. Helen and Cindy, she used to go out every day with those ladies. They were going to church five and six, seven, eight times a week. We'd have been doing great. We'd be in the Christian Hall of Fame if it was about just being active in your church activities, right? And I look at your, so many faces here. Many of you, you'd be in the Hall of Fame with us. We'd all have our red jackets, or I don't know what color they would be. But, but really, don't we? I, I, honestly, I thought, God, why, why couldn't you have made that the thing that's so much easier to do? And so I joke about that, but I, I'm also serious. It's, it's, it's sobering. It's really sobering that, I, I sometimes I just want to deny it and just act like it's not true. But he, what he told us to do with our lives was to make disciples. To make disciples. And we may not like that. Maybe, maybe you should ask yourself like I asked myself, am I in denial? Am I ignoring that? But you just can't ignore it. It's, it's the culmination of this whole book the last thing jesus says before he goes to heaven make disciples of all nations so if you ask yourself now how lord before you god let me ask to myself how am i doing how am i doing at making disciples now you know why i wish the question was how am i doing at being involved in the church activities be feel a lot better about that, wouldn't we? But I'm sorry. That's not what he said. But the beautiful thing about it is the beginning and the end. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. He's saying, I have all the power. And then he ends by saying, I'll be with you always. So it's hard, but that's why he said that, I believe. Yeah, it's hard, but I am with you. I will help you. You can't do it on your own. That's the good news about it being so hard, is that it it requires us to say, God, I need your help. This is hard what you're asking us to do. But you said all authority belongs to you. You commanded us to do it, but then you promised that you'd be with us, with all your authority and with your power. So it can be done. And, and I want to encourage you to take a step and say, God, this, this is a hard teaching. What you said to us at the end of your life was hard. 
but I want to honor you. And I'm not, I'm not saying we do this to try to earn our salvation. No, it's just what we love Jesus. He saved us. It's just our response is to want to do what he told us to do. But it's hard. But it is good news because it requires us to be dependent upon him. And when it happens, when people become more like Christ and they become equipped to help others, it brings God glory. Because it's something only, only he, can, he can do. He uses us, but ultimately it's to him. So I want to just talk about some practical things about this. Things that I've found that are, are really helpful. <clears throat> First is, if we're going to do it, the beautiful thing is Jesus left us an example. It would be so much harder if he hadn't told us how to do it. But not only did Jesus leave an example, but we see the Apostle Paul did basically the same things. And, I, and there's a book that I would encourage you if you're really interested in this, and I hope you'll be interested in this because it is what Jesus said, the main thing we need to be about um, as far as the way, um, that of course, we need to be in a relationship with him, and all this flows out of that. But there's a book by Robert Coleman, two books, The Master Plan of Evangelism and The Master it's called the master plan of discipleship. One, he looks at Jesus' life, and one, he looks at Paul's life and draws out the principles. How did they make disciples? How did they win, build, equip, and send people? And just quickly, I want to go through some of these points that Jesus ministered to people by abiding in Christ. He said, I just do the things I see God doing. I just say the things I hear God saying. He spent time alone with God in the morning, and then he said, no, I need to go to other villages also. God directed him. So he was led by the Spirit, just like Paul, the same way. He, relied, he abided in Christ, relied on the Holy Spirit to disciple people, to make disciples. Jesus focused on the disciples' hearts. We see that time and again. He didn't just look at their exterior behavior. He looked at what's going on in their heart, and we need to do that. And as I go through this list, maybe even think of where you're involved in discipleship, in a men's group or a community group uh, or meeting with somebody. As fathers and mothers, we should be discipling our children, making disciples of them. Are, are we using Jesus' method? Are we using Paul's method? Or are we using our own method? Well, I'd encourage you, start and focus on Jesus and Paul's method. Okay, are, with our children, are we focused on their behavior or are we focused on what's going on in their heart? Paul, he lived authentically. He said, my weaknesses are my strength. He was willing to admit his, his weaknesses. Ah, oh, the things I want to do, I don't do, and things I want to do, uh, things I don't want to do, I do, and things I don't want to, you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm missing an hour of sleep last night. All right, Jesus selected ordinary people, and before he selected them, he prayed about them. Who, God, do you want me to invest in? We need to be asking God that. Paul did the same. He carefully selected, he carefully discipled leaders. And then this really important, Jesus fully entered our world. And the people you're trying to help become more like Christ, do you just see them at a men's group every other week is that the way jesus did it popped in did a little devotion with his disciples every two weeks 
No, Jesus. Three years he was with them every day. Now, that's not really possible for us, but the idea, the principle here is, are we involved in people's lives that we're involved in? Are we just involved once every two weeks? Or do we go and do things with them? Go have lunch with them. Invite them to an activity. Have a picnic to them. I think for real life change to happen, it's got to involve more than just a devotion every couple of weeks. Paul became all things to all men. He spent time with people. They both were focused on multiplying. But their goal was all this big multiplication, bringing God's kingdom, but they, they, they worked small. Their vision was so big that they chose to start with just a few, and they realized to just multiply in a few. So it's a doable task. Jesus didn't say, you know, the model he left wasn't of millions and millions of people you got to disciple. He just said a few. Just invest in a few and teach them to, to do the same with others. And the power of multiplication is incredible. Then this is a key principle too. Association. Jesus spent all this time with his disciples. Paul talked about how he shared his life so deeply. It was like a father with his children, like a mother with a young baby. They gave their life. They didn't, they didn't stand aloof and try to teach people. No, they got dirty. They got next to them. They came alongside them and helped them, warts and all. And then they gave an example. In the same way, we want to be, we need to be a disciple in order to help others be a disciple. If we can, the most powerful thing is when we live out the truths of Scripture, that really impacts people. And then he gave them assignments. He made them do things. And so often in, in our trainings and discipleship, we just, people, we just teach them, but don't require them to do anything. And we know the more people do outside and in preparation for a group and the more they take a concept and live it out the more life change that we see and then jesus checked on them paul checked on them uh, he stayed with them modeled then he assisted them then he watched them do it and then he left and just monitored and helped me helped when they had problems so i'd encourage you to look look at this list as you think about oh how am i the people that I'm trying to influence and help to grow in Christ. Am I following Jesus' method? He left us an example for us to follow. So following it, and then something that I've uh, just, in the last 10, 15 years that God has just really shown me is uh, that we need to help people identify their past hurts and apply the gospel to it. Uh, Peter Schizero, a pastor in Brooklyn, says, unless people mature emotionally, they rarely mature spiritually. And I've just found that so true. And what he means by maturing emotionally is becoming in touch with feelings that we have, especially as they're related to past events in our life, bitterness we might feel toward people or, or toward certain concepts, or maybe uh, an aversion to certain things because of some traumatic things that have happened to our life, then an awareness of that, of those, that we have those feelings, that we have the bitterness about that, or we have an unusual reaction to something, and then working to resolve it, to understand and resolve it. 
So it may sound like I'm saying, oh, so the key to discipleship is counseling. Uh, I say, well, kind of, but the answer is still the gospel. The gospel is what changes people. When they see who they are in Christ, when they're born again, made new, given the Holy Spirit. But we found this in China. We struggled with this. Why are people not growing more? They have all these ups and downs from one week to another. And we realize, oh, so much of it is from their past. There's so much trauma and hurts. And we didn't do a good enough job of helping them. They have these, like a big wound on their arm. No wonder they get distracted. It's a big gaping wound. And we need to do better at helping them clean out that wound and apply the gospel to bring healing to it. Because they haven't figured out on their own how to do that. Some people do get that. And that's why they grow. But others, they, they just need help for someone to help them figure out how the gospel applies to that hurt, to that wound. Uh, and I just have seen, in even our international student group, we, we've done this. Um, I think of one of the gals. So what we had them do, and, and I have this here, we use a personal timeline. This is not rocket science. Now, there are some cases that there's a need for people to go to more advanced counseling with counselors that have lots of experience. But I believe there's a lot of things that in a small group where there's trust that's been built and people can share, God can do some amazing things through just some simple things. We use this timeline we just said, Take this timeline and write the ups and downs of your life. And people that have hurt you, things that have hurt you, hurts that still you think impact your life today. And they did. And then there's five, six, seven of us around the table and we say, is there anybody that would like to share one of these? uh, Some area where you have a hurt that you think still impacts your life today. And so it's totally voluntary. They can share with them. We said some of these things may be very personal. You maybe just want to meet with Helen and I alone, but there may be some you're willing to share in the whole group. And so all of them started doing this. One of the girls shared, yeah, when I was young, my mom told me, you're not as pretty as other girls, so you need to always be extra nice to people. And on top of that, she was the only child in their family. They had, they had wanted a boy, She was a girl. They gave her a guy's name. So every time throughout her whole life, every time she introduces herself, she's reminded, I'm not really what my parents wanted. Can you imagine how devastating that is? And she realized, yeah, that's a hurt that still impacts me today. And the message that Satan used to write on her heart was, you're not lovable. That's why your, your parents didn't love you. It's because you're not lovable. And you're, you're defective. There's, there's something wrong with you. You're not what your parents wanted. Wow, those are powerful lies. So what do we do? We use two very simple questions. We would say, let's pray and ask God as, as the seven of us here. Is there anything, God, you want to say to our friend here who just shared this. And also he said, maybe we want to ask to God. When, when that happens, when sometimes it's an incident where somebody has been attacked or assaulted, you say, God, where were you when that, when that happened? So we did that. 
and the most amazing thing happened. God did want to say something to that person. And I found so often we have these hurts in our lives and we stuff them down. Maybe occasionally we talk to other people, but we rarely bring them to God. And he wants to say something. He has the answer. He was there when it happened. And he wants to tell us where he was, what he was doing. And so sure enough, several people got the impression of certain verses God spoke, and they all amazingly fit together. This, this one brother, Simon, he's only been a Christian a few months, and he said, I, while we were just waiting there, I had this, this vision of like a, a cave, and there was something alive on the floor. I couldn't quite make it out, but there was this bright light shining down, and this little thing on the floor began to grow and struggle, and it was like it was encased in a plastic wrap or black plastic bag, and was vigorously moving and couldn't get out and was all this distress. Then I realized it had wings. It was like a, a, a human with, with wings on it, and they were struggling and flapping their wings, and the, uh, the plastic was giving, was, was stretching, but they were in all this travail and agony. Then finally, the wings began to break through, and they were dark uh, gray in color, but as the person kept struggling and flapping them, the the wings began to turn white and the person began to, to fly. And then somebody else shared how they said, yeah, God had put on me my heart that he's made us a new creation. Behold, all things become new. And several other things. And, and this person heard them. And then that week, she went back and she looked at the verses people had shared. And then we also encouraged, we said, almost always when there's trauma or something where we've been attacked, Satan uses it to attack our identity, who we are, to tell us, oh, your identity is you're unlovable, you're defective, that's your identity. And we say, no, the principle in Scripture is Paul says, put off the old and put on the new. So we say, no, we're rejecting that. That's not what God says about you. And then we give them a list of, of who they are in Christ. And I know in the past we've talked about this. Just verses that say the truth of who we are. We're accepted, we're a child of God, we're Jesus' friend, we're united with God. We tell them every day this week, read that and get it in your mind and let your mind be renewed and let it get down to your heart. And the next week she comes back and she says, wow, I'm a different person now. God has given me a breakthrough. And she said this beautiful prayer. She said, Lord, I know my, my mom and dad didn't love me the way I wanted they didn't love me unconditionally the way I needed, and they, they still don't today. But Lord, I forgive them. I know they, they didn't get the love they needed either. I forgive them, Lord, and Lord, I want to thank you that though I didn't get that, I understand now that you do love me unconditionally. You do care about me. And your love can make up for what they were lacking in giving me. And so, through those simple things, and I was thinking about this in men's group, women's group, community group, that's the perfect place for something like this to happen with people that you know and love. And God can use that and those principles we talked about 
to make you more Christ-like in every part of your life and bring transformation. And it's simple. And you can learn that, and then you can, now that you're equipped, can go and help others. See others come to Christ and then see their lives transformed as well. So that's, a, uh, I think, a good place to stop. I'm going to talk a little bit about outreach, but I think we'll just leave it there, that, that idea of, yes, God set the bar so high when he said, make disciples, evangelize people, and build them up. But he gave us an example of how to do it. He said he's with us. Yeah, it's hard, but I'm with you. And if you'll be dependent on me, it can happen. So I want to ask that you'll take stock of your life. And if you're not doing well, just admit it. Say, God, I, I've been pretty good at being involved in church, but if, if what you really want us to do is make disciples, Lord, help me become a better disciple and help me to learn how to help others. And struggle. You'll fail and you'll succeed, but work at it. Don't, don't deny it. Don't just say, oh, well... Uh, I'll, I'll pretend this is really the goal. Because it was the last thing that, that Jesus said. And he, he didn't give it meaning it would be a burden. He knew that that's where we'd find real life. I think of the verse in Paul. He says to Thessalonians, he says, and what is our hope, our joy, the crown of glory that we'll have when Christ returns. What's our hope, our joy, our crown of glory? It's you. It's you, Thessalonians, that I've given my life to. To see you come to Christ and become more like him. You are our joy and our crown. How interesting, he said, our. So it's, uh, as Jay even mentioned, disciples are not just one person People have many influences. Praise God. And it's, it's something that, that happens uh, through the body of Christ. But that's what he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we do just come before you. And Lord, thank you that when, when we are honest with you and we say, God, that's just hard. That is just a hard, hard teaching. And Lord, I don't, I don't like it. It's hard for me to do. I'm not very good at it. In fact, God, I, up to now, I pretty much stink at doing that. That you don't reject us. And you tell us instead, I'm with you. I am with you. Yes, you can't do it by yourself. But I'll be with you. And I've given you an example. And I've put people around you that love you and want to help you. And I've put you around people that you can help and love and see their lives transformed. So Lord, we just thank you so much for the way your kingdom is. We just stand in awe of you. And Lord, we just ask for help that we would really think about these things, that we'd wrestle with them, that we'd not deny them or give up. And Lord, I just believe every person that will take a step of obedience to begin doing this, that you will bless them and will find, oh, yes, giving our lives to help others is where joy is found. 
in you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.